Welcome to the inaugural episode of The Commons, a podcast featuring researchers, innovators, artists, entrepreneurs, and community builders who are improving the human condition in your own backyard and across the globe. I'm your host, Thomas Osha. In years past, May has been a month of great celebration for college-bound high school seniors as they gather with family, friends, teachers, and their communities to announce their college selections, engage in senior pranks, graduate with pomp and circumstance, and answer an unending series of questions about what they wish to study and where they intend to spend the next four years of their life. But not this year. College Signing Day was yet another casualty of COVID-19, and commencements have gone virtual the world over. The only two questions on anyone's mind these days are, when will it be over, and what will it be like in a post-pandemic world? Perhaps these are not the questions to ask ourselves, however. While we are in a fight, COVID-19 is not an enemy that we will defeat by any date certain. It is difficult to picture a return to anything approaching pre-COVID-19 normalcy before a vaccine is developed, manufactured at scale, and widely available to the global population. Fortunately, thousands of researchers at leading universities, academic medical centers, startups, and established companies are rushing to develop a safe, effective vaccine. But the fruits of their labors could still be months, if not a year or more away. Even when a vaccine is available, it is unlikely that COVID-19 will be wiped from the face of the earth. More likely, we will find ourselves in an uneasy relationship with it, in much the same way we manage to coexist in a world with various strains of flu or other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS. Beyond the scientific efforts, we will also need a full spectrum of talent in other disciplines, sociology, engineering, coding, anthropology, psychology, and economics, just to name a few. Who do you think is going to help evolve best practices in contact tracing, social distancing, economic recovery and stimulus, behavioral health, and telemedicine? Where will this talent come from? Where it has always come from, our colleges and universities. In her excellent op-ed recently in the New York Times, Christina Paxson, the president of Brown University, wrote that we should make reopening our colleges and universities a national priority. In total, they contribute almost $600 billion to our gross domestic product. They are the most stable employers in many cities. And most vitally, they drive innovation, a stronger economy, and economic mobility for our children, all of which we will need as we seek to bounce back from the body blows our economy has sustained. And we must recognize the longer these institutions are closed, the less accessible they become to our most underserved populations. In fact, we are in danger of rolling back the gains that have been achieved over the last decade or more in making college more available for our neediest students. Fortunately, in addition to Christina Paxson, other strong leaders like Arizona State's Michael Crow and Purdue's Mitch Daniels have announced their intention to reopen their campuses this fall, albeit with new health and safety measures in place. And according to the Chronicle of Higher Education, almost 70% of institutions polled had a plan in place for delivering the fall semester on campus. 
as well as most institutions, have made the rapid adjustment to online education. It is the on-campus experience, the interaction, maturation, collaboration, diversity, and accessibility that also helps to shape our children into the adults they will become and the future leaders we need them to be if we are to be better prepared to face such global shared experiences like the novel coronavirus and climate change. Some believe it's impossible to forecast what the next week will be like, let alone this fall. Others question the time, energy, and resources required to plan for multiple scenarios that may never come to pass. But our education leaders have an opportunity to adjust their business models, re-engineer operational processes, and become even more student-focused, providing the scholarship, research, innovation, and service that can provide multidimensional benefits to our large cities and rural college towns alike. We're now at the two-month mark for lockdowns and stay-at-home orders in the United States, much longer for those in parts of Europe and Asia. The past week has been marked by attempts at the state level to reopen at least parts of the economy, get people back to work, and dipping our collective toes in the murky waters, trying to find a footing that might represent a new normal. But why welcomed in some parts of the country, castigated in others, taken collectively, the restart and recovery efforts feel disorganized, disconnected at best. In this time of severely impacted state and local resources, some would argue that we have neither the time nor the money to waste. What we need is a blueprint, a shortcut, if you will, that encapsulates many of the lessons we have learned over the past decade and enables leaders to make targeted investments, which result in amplified impacts. Enter Innovation Districts. My guest on The Commons today is Julie Wagner. She is the president of the Global Institute on Innovation Districts and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. She is one of the preeminent sources of thought leadership regarding innovation districts and the author of numerous papers and articles on the subject, including the two seminal works, The Rise of Innovation Districts, which originally framed the idea, and The Evolution of Innovation Districts, which has advanced the practice on a global basis. She is a dear friend who joins me from her home in Switzerland. Welcome to the Commons, Julie. Thank you very much for having me. Why don't we start, just for those who may not be as familiar with the concept, on just give us a definition and some context on, on an innovation district. In our original paper that I co-wrote, The Rise of Innovation Districts, we characterize innovation districts as compact geographies of innovation primarily found in cities or urbanizing areas, and that they're anchored by R&D-intensive institutions, such as universities and medical institutions, but also companies and clusters of startups, community spaces, and all of those really important intermediaries, such as accelerators and incubators. And then in addition to that, they are strengthened by a whole range of different kinds of other uses, mixed uses, such as housing, retail, and then, of course, a range of programs, sort of that soft 
invisible connective tissue that's sort of tying people together. So the paper was so popular. It had mayors, uh, state officials, and federal officials rushing to declare innovation districts all over the place. Is there a minimum number of assets that are, are really needed to have at least the kind of innovation district that might be able to be a meaningful contributor to uh, to recovery efforts in a post-pandemic? So I'm actually going to divide your question into two parts because I think pre-COVID, it was very interesting in looking at an emerging set of innovation districts globally. I think in the United States, we had counted around 20 innovation districts that were more in more advanced stages, but that there were in Europe, in Australia, across some parts of South America, a really sort of budding of of a range of innovation districts, really more at these emerging stages. And they generally have been uh, those is highly intentional about having synergy across different actors. A key component is that they're leveraged by some R&D intensive institution. So I do believe that there is some minimum threshold. So let me now go to the second part of the answer, which is what about a COVID recovery response? And I would argue that in that circumstance, when you're looking to stimulate and drive growth, drive inclusive growth, drive growth that is going to have a catalytic effect in creating new jobs, wages, and creating new or strengthening clusters, the list is quite a bit and so I, I, I would argue that if innovation districts are going to be viewed as a, as a recovery package, then the list actually would be much smaller and a much more robust set of districts that have already a set of systems in place that could really drive and catalyze. Interesting that you use the term inclusive growth. And so one fear that's out there is that we may lose over a decade of progress in economic mobility for underserved communities. So what is it about an innovation district that makes it more inclusive than, say, a traditional office building or office park? Well, part of this actually has to do with intentionality. The extent to which leaders that are driving innovation districts recognize and understand that they have an important role. And I would argue that the extent to which these districts are doing this is it's still uneven, but there is a growing rise and a growing focus on strengthening their efforts to grow jobs and then to grow area residents into this job. Now, there are a lot of different strategies that are being tested and tried in order to do that. And they have started actually at this point starting to create a very detailed list with a number of innovation districts to understand what they're doing. So some are particularly focused on understanding their innovative sectors, dissecting what kinds of jobs are being created that don't require a force, 
four-year degree, that those that do require a four-year degree, but that perhaps there could be some additional mentoring in both of those buckets to ensure that those residents that are in the adjacent region or in the adjacent area can literally participate in that very specific and localized economy. So some of these districts are literally identifying and detailing those specific traits that they need, the specific strengths or the specific types of jobs that they need, and that they're actually going out usually through a workforce development program, which can be run by a state or a city, to then help match people with those jobs. And if it's not, if people don't have those jobs, to then participate in the training of those jobs. This is sort of one example, and it's certainly being used and applied with great success in a number of innovation districts, including those in the United States. And it's starting to be adopted elsewhere. That is one example. Another example is really thinking about how you bundle the kinds of assets that are happening in these are naturally occurring in these systems. One of the obvious ways to do that is to be looking at bundled procurement and then really transforming that combined purchase power into something that can actually grow jobs. And there's ways in which that's done. Let me give you one example, which was actually spearheaded by a number of individuals and actors in the Cleveland area where they essentially bundled their procurement and then through that established not-for-profit organization that would then run specific types of programs to perform or provide the services now needed by those institutions, well, whether it was growing specific types of vegetables, whether it was doing specific laundry service, or other types of services, they essentially created new jobs and then trained area residents into those jobs. The interesting thing on that case is that those workers were not employees. They were actually participants or shareholders in those particular organizations. So they were growing up the value chain as stockholders or shareholders, essentially, through these very localized efforts. These are just two examples, but these are the kinds of things that districts absolutely must be doing and must be doing if they are to be considered part of a recovery package post-COVID. So you know, it's interesting because you you think about that's true economic mobility and in, in 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 action in in Cleveland in Philadelphia in Baltimore and other places and so what what kinds of investments are usually required by cities or maybe private philanthropy foundations others to kind of support these kinds of efforts so that you have a let's say a more balanced or at least a more inclusive Recovery. And I think our each each case is unique. So if you take a Barcelona or if you take a Philadelphia, one of the questions is what's the workforce development component that is being, you know, that's being leveraged that's usually a state or a city function. So in some cases, not all, but in some cases these are in existence and that they simply need to be combined. In a 
through a partnership. This is the same, I would argue, through the procurement that in many respects, and this is what I've been actually looking at pretty closely, is that often it actually is very helpful for a third party to facilitate the bundling strategy for someone outside that could really help negotiate and facilitate across, let's say, a cluster of 12 universities and medical institutions. They're on their own. They simply cannot do it. So I think, I think there's going to be several roles in which an outside actor can play. For sure, they can be investing and putting in some additional resources on their own. But for my read today, I am seeing an important, if not outsized role in facilitating that or catalyzing that across the range. So it's interesting that you mentioned Barcelona. I know that you've been spending time during this this stay at home and, and quarantine period having conversations with innovation districts uh, around the globe. Are there are there some commonalities that you're starting to see, whether it's Philadelphia, Barcelona, Halifax, Sheffield, Melbourne? I would say yes. Short answer. Longer answer is they have as a collective demonstrated, and when I say they, I mean at least 25 to 30 innovation districts that I have had the pleasure of spending time with over the last month to really talk through what's happening to them on the ground, given COVID, what they are doing as a collective leadership class to pivot, to reorganize to shift and to respond. And I would say in general terms, you know, these 25 have been showing to me that there are a few key things that are fundamentally enabling them to do this pivoting, to do this shifting. And that is the fact that they have a leadership class, that they're not just sort of random sets of different actors that haven't had conversations about how to work together previously. Now, in fact, that these districts actually have already pre-COVID developed a sort of more horizontal approach to collaborate, to compete, and then had already established some degree of networking and understanding about how to work so even with tremendous differences in places like Halifax, Melbourne, um, Liverpool, or in Cleveland, or I mean, the list goes on and on with these 25, there is a common approach in how they are trying to problem solve, and it hinges on this leadership component. There's other things, right, that they are doing and again, building off of that leadership that they have, which is now thinking about what does this mean, for example, to rethink place and space. So the interesting thing, and this is something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, is that innovation district is a type of a paradigm that is built off of density, physical proximity, and shared amenity. And that just a few months ago, these virtues were embraced. And now they're being called into 
question as our world has literally withdrawn into itself. And so it's, it's putting into the very question of the value of innovation districts at a moment of such uncertainty. So where do we go for, where do we go from here, Julie? I believe that the dust still needs to settle, to be honest. I think, I think it's very easy to rush and make a statement about what is going to happen to how we value space, place, how we're going to be thinking about mm-hmm. these small mashup places and these funky, cool corners and these kind of unique um, attributes that we often find in not just innovation districts, but really in many parts of our community. I think it is just too soon. If there's anything that I've learned, it's that uh, mankind is a social animal and under normal circumstances, we enjoy being together. We're social creatures who, who do look for those opportunities to collaborate, to, to draw near to one another. Correct. And I think, you know, in my conversations with the dozens of innovation districts globally, there is a real sensitivity to that. And also a real sensitivity to the hesitation and fear that people have. And so there is this very interesting toggling between the values that we had designed these innovation districts around and now the need and the imperative to test and try new models of what place and space should look like. How much distance should we be allowing in these lobbies? Are there unique ways in which we can move people? move them through a space that doesn't feel forced. These are kinds of the things that they're thinking about just on a physical perspective that I can assure you they're thinking much much more on the economic, on the financing, on the programming. Last question, anything that this pandemic has caused you to change your mind about as to the value of innovation districts? I think I, I, I often talk to people that are focused just on the economic thinking about how to revise the small business class of actors, main street and those small and medium enterprises, without thinking about the linkage right now to this broader pandemic and the very real need for us to have addressed this health issue. If there is no vaccine, then we're going to need to be thinking through very carefully about how there is a very, very active testing response that allows and gives people the confidence to move in spaces and places. So this conversation has to be twinned between the conversation about how you realize or rethink space, any space, and what's happening on the medical. And so this is why I keep toggling back and forth as well and trying to understand what this means for any geography, whether it's downtown, a business improvement district, a main street, or an innovation district. I think that's great advice. There's so many that are trying to rush with prescriptives right away. And I think the, the, the thoughtfulness by which you are taking in input from so many different locations to kind of coalesce this into at the appropriate time some sort of meaningful learnings, but certainly between here and there, 
there's still a lot that's, that's going to happen uh, uh, globally and then down to the local and down to the innovation district level. Well, I certainly appreciate uh, your time today. Thank you for joining me on the commons, for sharing this perspective with me. And uh, love to have you back at, at some point as, as we go down in a few months and maybe see what progress we've made. Thanks for having me, Tom. This has been the commons. My guest today was Julie Wagner. She is the president of the Global Institute on Innovation Districts. For more about Julie and more about the Global Institute, please visit www.giid.org. This is The Commons. I'm Tom Ocean. The Commons is a production of Wexford Science and Technology, LLC. Views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and guest. To view additional material about today's episode, submit questions or story ideas, or learn more about Wexford Science and Technology, please visit www.wexfordscitech.com forward slash the commons. I'm your host, Tom Osha. Thanks for listening.